Welcome to Meet the Leader, a podcast where top leaders share how they're tackling the world's toughest challenges. Today's leader, James Chen. He's the founder of Clearly, a global education initiative making eye care affordable and accessible to the millions of people around the world who suffer from poor vision. He'll talk about what this initiative has taught him about resilience and the simple pivot that unlocked progress. Subscribe to Meet the Leader on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I'm Linda Lucina, and this is Meet the Leader. Throughout this journey, my guiding principle has been to deliberately deploy my limited capital to risky, out-of-the-box ideas that I felt had asymmetric impact outcomes. Having a solution isn't always enough to fix a problem. For instance, a simple set of glasses, something invented 700 years ago, can help billions of people with fuzzy vision stay in school and stay employed and even boost economies and quality of life simultaneously. But today, 700 years after their invention, 2.2 billion people still don't have access to things like vision tests or even that simple set of glasses. On today's Meet the Leader, philanthropist James Chen explains why that is and why he's dedicated years of his life to this problem. He'll take us through his journey, one that included founding a nonprofit and an adjustable focus eyewear company, and even founding Clearly, a global education campaign that resulted in a first ever UN resolution on vision this past July. He'll explain how he deployed an entrepreneur's mindset to stay resilient, a mindset that runs in his family. James's grandfather founded a manufacturing business in Shanghai, while James's father, who experienced war and famine as a child, helped build that business into an international enterprise and later supported causes such as literacy and education through philanthropy. Their examples inspired James and helped him retool after setbacks, eventually landing on the critical pivot that unlocked political support and buy-in needed to help make progress for affordable eye care. The professionals are telling you it can't be done, you know, but I think it can be done, you know, pig-headed perseverance. Lastly, James will deliver an important message about a concept he calls moonshot philanthropy. He'll share the special magic that can come when philanthropists take on risk. He'll get into all of that. But first, he'll share the moment that changed his life. The moment where, after living around the world in places like Hong Kong, Nigeria, and England, he learned as a teenager that he had a vision problem. I was uh, in uh, upstate New York in high school and I wanted to get my driving license. I went to, you know, fill in the form and then the first thing they have you do is take the eye test. And I failed that eye test. That's only, that's that's when I realized uh, that I had an eye problem, right? Uh, a vision problem. And so that's that was something, uh, uh, I think, very impactful that if I had not had my vision corrected, it, I realized that it would have, had a big impact on, on, on my life, right? As it probably did in my younger days, and I didn't realize I had a, an eye problem. And then working in, the, in my early career in developing parts of Asia, I noticed that very few people in the developing world actually wear glasses. And always kind of stuck in my mind, so I wore glasses, you know, do they not need glasses? Or, or perhaps they don't have access to glasses. Of course, now, 
I know that it, it is the latter, right? They don't have access. And despite all the setbacks that I, I've encountered, what has kept me going is really my own need for glasses and how this has changed my life's trajectory. And part of the reason why you didn't know you had a vision problem is because you lived abroad in many of these developing areas. Is that is that is that part of that? Yes, that's right. Yeah, whether it's living in uh, the, the developing world countries or uh, I guess moving around, somehow I guess I I slipped through the cracks. And and actually, even today, you know, it's interesting that even in the developed world, many kids slip through the cracks in terms of uh, getting their eyes tested and getting the correction that, that they need. For example, in the U.S., the best figures are that something like 25% of kids who need glasses either don't have glasses or have the wrong prescription. So what are these barriers? How do people slip through the cracks in either the developed or the developing world? As part of my journey, I, I actually wrote a book about the vision issues and the, and the challenges, particularly in the developing world. And uh, we put into something called the four Ds, right? All the challenges essentially fall into issues with uh, diagnosis, which is having someone who could give you a, a vision screening. That's number one, right? To figure out whether you do need uh, vision correction or glasses. Number two is uh, distribution. Often the challenge is very much around getting the right pair of glasses, you know, with the right lens power to the person in the developing world. That is a very uh, expensive uh, proposition if it's even possible to do. Third is dollars. There's a cost involved both to set up a system, but also for individuals, whether they have the income to be able to afford glasses, right? And then fourthly, it is about demand, which is this issue that I had as a child. You don't know what you don't know. You know, you think the world is the way it is. The blurry vision is normal, so to speak, until you get glasses and you say, wow, okay. So it's uh, really being able to get a pair of glasses onto someone's face to help them to see better before they can recognize, you know, what's what really is normal. Mm-hmm. So that's the four Ds. And just to give people a good grounding, can you tell us about the Clearly campaign? Uh, what is it and why do we need it? Yeah, so the Clearly campaign is actually the latest piece of, uh, of, of a journey that I've been on for over 18 years now. Uh, I started the journey co-founding a company which, pi- which is pioneering adjustable power lens technology. Uh, then I founded an NGO called Vision for a Nation, which remarkably proved that vision correction and glasses can be accessible to the population of a low-income country, in this case, Rwanda. Rwanda today is the first low-income country in history to be able to deliver access to vision correction to all its citizens. I also provided uh, along this journey seed funding to some other promising initiatives in the vision space, some that worked out, some that didn't and uh, also funding uh, for research to show the impact of vision correction. But throughout this journey, my guiding principle has been to deliberately deploy my limited capital to risky out-of-the-box ideas that I felt had asymmetric impact outcomes. Tell us how you first started to to work on the campaigning for vision, these things that you know maybe weren't getting the traction that you needed. Where did you start? The campaign, as I mentioned, the Clearly campaign is, was, was only 
in the last five years or so, right? And before that, I had spent over a decade myself. You know, when I started, you know, aside from the fact that I need glasses, <clears throat> I knew nothing about about the problem, you know, what was out there. What It seemed to be such a frictionless uh, uh, thing for those of us in the developed world. I mean, you go to a, a shopping mall or a high street retailer and uh, there are optical shops. You go in, get a test and pick out your glasses and that's it, right? So it's very low friction. But that is actually, you know, that model doesn't work in the developing world. And so my early part of my journey is was really to a very steep learning curve to understand the issues and the barriers. And and certainly for the first few years, the more I dug into it, you know, the more problems there were. You know, it wasn't like I was finding solutions. I was really, (laughs) really uncovering more and more problems. Early on, as I mentioned, I started, you know, with this company that made uh, adjustable powered lens glasses, which, you know, intuitively was to me, particularly having, you know, grown up in Africa, that this could really simplify the cost of distribution, right, and get the glasses, to, you know, with the right power to the people who need it. Um, so I was very excited by that. We went to the World Bank and uh, really spent a lot of effort educating them and uh, and trying to understand what their view. To cut a long story short, after two years of effort, we failed, right? And uh, and so very much, you know, this I call this journey. It's a it's 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 number one. It's about learning about the issues, right? And then the challenge of facing uh, setbacks and failures, and and of course, you know. It was. It's very, I guess, tempting to want to stop, right? To to say, you know, this is too complicated. This is uh, too much pain damage. And anyway, you know, the professionals are telling you it can't be done. You know, but perhaps in your not in my naivete, you know, uh, it's like, wait a minute, no, that I think it can be done. You know, and so 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 sometimes not not being an expert probably helps. You know, just a a pig-headed perseverance. There's something to be said for that, I guess. With those adjustable <clears throat> lens glasses, now, what was it that made that fall apart? What did you learn from that effort? Well, sometimes you know, you you tie your shoelaces, you end up, you know, lots of these knots, right? And and then you just have to slowly kind of unpick those those knots, you know, to untie your shoelaces. What I realized, the more I dug into it, there were these knots. And I think those, the, the four Ds, you know, ultimately what we call the four Ds, you know, we had to go through all of them painfully one at a time to understand what the challenges were behind all, all of those and how do you untie those knots, right? And and I think very early on, it was this sense of, wow, you know, I'm someone who's new, a novice here, and the experts are telling you it can't be done, you know, can, you know, why, you know, the self-doubt, I guess, you know, around, you know, can this be done? But luckily, I had a, 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 a very good group of uh, advisors who said to me, we think that people like the, the, the World Bank's wrong, the optical professionals are wrong, you know, I don't know why I thought they were right, but you know what, that's the thing I just said, you know, Again, I go back to this point probably is that having, you know, the need for glasses myself every morning, you know, putting them on, you know, that's really the anchor of, of allowing me to continue on that journey despite all the pushback and the uh, setbacks we were having. I think it's really interesting that you started to get traction once you started talking about this as a sustainable development issue. 
For those who are listening, the SDGs are the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, and that's a set of 17 interlinked goals that tackle things like poverty or education with certain aims by 2030. And so you shifted from just a healthcare thing to saying to people, hey, if you want to transform your countries, people need to see. And so I think it's really interesting that people didn't prioritize it when it was just health and well-being, but when it came to the fact that, hey, this is key to growth, to economics, that then people started paying attention. Can you talk a little bit about that? I, I think you hit the nail on the head, and that's probably the biggest contribution of uh, the Clearly campaign was to really reframe the issue for the global community, you know, for policymakers and government leaders. Prior to the campaign, you know, poor vision was put in this, into the health silo, right? And within the health silo, if you're the Ministry of Health, you've got so many priorities, right? And and so many others that seem much higher priority than someone with poor vision. Not someone who's blind, right? Someone who just has fuzzy vision. It doesn't it intuitively seems like this is a low priority issue. You've got AIDS, malaria, child malnutrition, so many things that seem to be much more important, right? Uh, or, or if you're the education, you know, it's, as you say, you know, it's uh, learning, you know, productivity, so many other issues that seem to be higher priority than someone with blurry vision, right? But with the campaign, our success has been to reframe that. And I guess in a way, we're lucky that it, it, that the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, came around when they did. It allowed us to, to show that correcting poor vision was the golden thread to achieving some of these SDGs. And I think that is what has resonated in the global community to realize that, wow, you're right. If there are 2.2 billion people in the world, you know, who have you know, poor vision, right? If if they their vision is not corrected, they can they can then intuitively see that that's going to have a carry on effect on productivity, education outcome, gender equality, so many of the the things that the the world community has has pledged to to help fix, right? To talk a little bit more about that connection between vision and productivity, you also have helped to sort of drive research. Can you talk a little bit about the Prosper study, uh, what it is, and also what surprised you about its uh, findings? Yeah, so the the, the Prosper study uh, uh, was a study, a randomized controlled trial, right, which was done in Assam, India, with tea pickers, and which are mostly women and uh, you know older women, in fact, and. Uh, and what we were able to do is to take a, a, a sample and half the people did not get vision correction, their vision corrected, and half of them did their get their vision corrected. And uh, the result was that those who had the vision corrected, their productivity improved by uh, an average of almost 22%. And for those over the age of 45, actually went up over 32%. And so that's a, that if you can kind of think about that 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 is equivalent to one extra day of productivity a week right so that's a huge impact in fact from what we know that is probably the biggest impact from any health in intervention that has been that has been studied right and so having that study published by Lancet Global Health uh, which is a peer-reviewed journal that really helped to uh, start to show the the evidence behind uh, uh, the link of poor vision and, and in this case, agricultural productivity. 
And then there's also this um, research that you guys are doing with the Wellcome Trust. Can you talk a little bit about some of those findings and what's really standing out for you? The Wellcome Trust collaboration on on the research is is actually a very new. This this happened just was approved by Wellcome Trust late last year. So we're just about to start these four um, research trials, right? But it's in the, it's, it's essentially in the same track of trying to show that link between whether it is um, education outcomes or, you know, uh, the link to services to um, the elderly. And there's one that will happen in Vietnam, which is not an STG, but which is a very interesting link between poor vision and and accidents or road traffic safety. Mm. You know, today in Africa, road traffic accidents is the largest killer of people under 30, right? And again, we intuitively understand that the link between poor vision and and the potential for traffic accidents, right? But there's never been a, a study that done done to actually show how what to quantify that link. And so that's what we're trying to attempt uh, in, in our study in Vietnam. So let's talk about what happened in July. Last summer, the UN adopted its first ever resolution on vision. And this was an effort that you had campaigned on for many, many, many years. Can you tell us about that resolution and why it was important? We launched it just around the time when the SDGs were were adopted in 2015, right? And of course, the pitch has been that, hey, you know, this is uh, the issue that the world forgot. And so to have the uh, the, the UN unanimously pass a resolution in, in this past year in 2021 to acknowledge that, you know, vision correction is an important issue that needs to be addressed by the world community and actually sets uh, a target of 2030 where countries should strive towards uh, delivering access to vision correction to all its citizens. And so very much that with a time frame, uh, with a commitment of all the countries in the world, you know, it's now for the I community to, to rally together to figure out how to help governments to deliver on these on this pledge, right? And I think it's it's really interesting because it is such an achievement to get kind of part of these agenda basically the agenda, right? But it's also amazing to me uh, how much work it took just to get there. <laughs> exactly. I, I, I tell uh, my, my colleagues, uh, you know, while we're celebrating it, all of that, that means is, is that we now can really begin our journey to correct the problem. Up until now, my 18 years as to try and convince people that there is a problem, right? Now we got to figure out how to fix it, which is not, which is not an easy challenge, shall we say. But because glasses, as I mentioned, have been around for 700 years, and that is the core of the solution to the vast majority of the 2.2 billion people who have need for vision correction, that we have the solution. It's not like a vaccine that needs to be invented. The, the solution exists. It's just now the, the political will, right, and, and to be organized well to be able to deliver that access. And of course, there is a the small matter of the funding issue, which we're also trying to work on. The pandemic era, as you can imagine, there's been there's been competitions for res- the scarce resources has been has been that uh, we can we can see is a big challenge. The day they made the resolution public, what was that like for you? It almost felt surreal. That was kind of our our dream kind of outcome for the campaign and to have it actually occur. I mean, 
you know, you, you set really high goals, right? And of course, you strive to achieve them, but it's not often that you actually hit, get the big prize, so to speak, right? And so, so, so really, really gratifying. And, and I have to say that, uh, you know, it really was uh, the efforts of so many people involved to be able to achieve, but there were some real champions and heroes along the way that allowed this to happen. And, and so give us a sense too, if everything goes right, if countries sort of take notice, they sit up, sit up a little bit straighter and they're like, nope, we need to prioritize vision. They get the funding, they, they meet all their marks and we've tackled global vision issues. What does that, what does the world look like? What's changed? What's our before and after? I think what the world community cares about, I think, is that what's the impact on GDP, so to speak, right? Okay. On productivity, which leads to income, you know, the uh, research that we're doing establishing those links you know gives the these governments a confidence to kind of raise the priority of this issue right because they can see if you think about from a return on investment point of view that this is going to deliver a very high return on investment and which means you know for the people that they have a better quality of at least uh, income standard, right? Higher incomes, right? But there's also this uh, quality of life issue, right? Which is which is qualitative, you know, and so very, not as easy to measure, but, but very much we believe it helps families uh, and individuals within families to lead a better life or to achieve higher potential, right? Kind of anecdotal evidence would be typical family, in, you know, in Africa, for example, right? The, the women, the mother and daughters, you know, are the backbone of the family. And for the mother of the family, you know, typically it's her role is to cook for the family. But once she lose, starts to lose her vision, she starts to be less useful for the family in, for example, in cooking, right? You're chopping and all this. And, and so um, that then falls to the, to the daughter to do, which perhaps means that that younger person either doesn't get to go to school or doesn't get to go out and earn an income for the family, right? And so there's lots of these uh, effects, um, not least of which is I think the quality of life dramatically improves uh, for someone who has better vision or, or clear vision. Tell us what it takes to fund this. Can you help us put that into context? It's all very relative. You know, what I read about the sustainable development goals, I think a figure of $5 trillion to achieve the SDGs, right? Within that context, I think the vision piece would be quite small. The best estimate that I've seen is uh, that if we can spend $14 billion a year over the next 10-year period, that would be the quantum of funding that's needed to, to be able to tackle this issue, right? My experience is that, you know, Throwing money at a problem doesn't solve the issue. You actually actually have to figure out how to do it, right? And so there are some question marks around that. But again, nothing that I think is unsolvable because the key tool that's needed exists, right? And then it's just about you know, more about organizational issues and political will to achieve this. But in terms of the funding issue, I think the quantum we're talking about is, you know, 140 billion or so over a 10-year period, right? Which against the backdrop of the entire need just for the SDGs, for forget about climate change and, and many other issues, right? And, and I think that's perhaps uh, something that I think will also resonate with governments because at each government level, you know, that figure breaks down to a perhaps more manageable number. 
I did want to bring up, if I may, another corollary point, which is that, you know, even with the funding, this idea of what that number is, right? And this is an an observation about about philanthropy, which is that lots of money is, is spent to tackle social issues. But then we find we're often frustrated why, you know, the money seems to be not having any impact or lots of examples of fraud and waste, right? But uh, if I look at my journey, I think that the approach that I took, which is this high risk, you know, funding these uh, risky ideas, this is the part which I see is missing in the world today that is desperately needed, right? Which is this risk capital to help you know, uncover and to test new ideas and new approaches, right? And then to to scale up the things that work, right? And what we're trying to do is to is to uh, privatize failure, right? And to then socialize the successes. So uh, uh, when there where there are failures, you know, we as the philanthropists absorb that, and where there are the successes, you know, we share with the with the world. And so that's kind of the the core of what I would call the moonshot philanthropic approach to uh, tackling the world's problems. No, and I, I think that's a really important point because you believe very strongly that philanthropists need to take on risk, which I think is fair. Why has that sort of not been the case so far? You know, like like what, is it just the how things have sort of shaken out? Is it just been why has this that piece not been in place previously? Because it's hard. It's, <laughs> number one, it's really hard to do, right? You know, it's taken me 18, 19 years to get to this point. And, uh, and, uh, and along the way, there's, you know, you know, when you take risks, you know, there are going to be setbacks, right? And failures. And, and that is a, a huge kind of a, you know, emotional challenge, particularly in the early years, you know, I, I know so little and, and and yet all the professionals are, are saying, no, no, it can't be done, right? And so there's that element of self-doubt and kind of the fear of ridicule, like, you know, that people think of you having more, you know, more money than brains. Of course, also, there's this emotion that I think un- very difficult to process, which is, you know, I'm doing this thing that, you know, with with overwhelming odds and the thought is, you know, I'm squandering the family capital, right? <laughs> that was so hard for my, you know, earlier generations to accumulate that, that I'm kind of throwing it down a, 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 a bottomless pit, you know, with dubious sense of, of what the what the outcomes would be so so these are very kind of tangible challenges that that keep people from I, I think what I see you know in in what most donors do today is what I would call uh, charity or patronage right which is uh, very much um, kind of reactive rather than a proactive approach you know mm-hmm. it's risk averse rather than risk taking uh, but what's important is that in you know in the world today there are not groups or, or, or actors who can take the risks you know uh, if you think about it, institutions like governments or even cor- corporates they they are actually agents of the owners of the capital i.e the taxpayers or shareholders so it's very hard for them to explain you know setbacks and failures right and whereas for the private philanthropic community we're able to uh because it's our money, right? As I as I mentioned, if it fails, it's our money. If it succeeds, it's for the greater good. And the impact of that, right? Is it that also that you know people are being a little bit more? They're more invested then 
also um, in, in where that money goes, as opposed to um, maybe the other one, might, they might be more sort of disconnected from, from the impact, right? You have more sort of passion yes. plays in it. As I think in most things in life, the more effort you put in, the more gratifying the outcome, right? And that's what we, we strive to do is to, to keep moving the ball forward, to, to get away from the status quo, right? To really try and think and try to uh, improve uh, outcomes. And with that sort of reactive uh, philanthropy that you were talking about, you know, um, instead of sort of playing, you know, whack-a-mole, right, <laughs> you can sort of take a more of a holistic picture of things and be like, okay, yes. this is what I can, I can, um, I see is going to be the need. And here's maybe a way that we can navigate to, to tackle it. Well, I, I also want to say that I, I you know, I, I, I don't want to cast dispersions on the reactive philanthropy. I think, you know, Certainly, whether it's charity or patronage, you know, that's number one. That's better than not giving, right? Everyone, particularly the, the wealthy parts of uh, society, have an obligation to, to give and give generously, right? Uh, uh, but Mackenzie Scott has been in the news and what she's doing is amazing in, in, in many ways, right? You know, she's taken on a group called uh, Bridgespan to help her distribute her fortune, you know, in a smart way, right? But I, when I look at that, I still can't get across, you know, get past this idea that, you know, with all the pr- problems, issues out there, you know, it's like an ocean, right? And it, mm. that as big a rock as she has, you know, when you drop it into the ocean, you know, uh, uh, it create, creates some waves, right? But ultimately, it doesn't create the tsunami of change that's needed, right? How you don't kind of change the status quo, so to speak, right? And so that's where I think the proactive moonshot philanthropy steps in. And it's not, again, not for everyone, but uh, certainly I think there are people who have, if they have the passion and the, and are willing to persevere, I think they could make some huge strides in, in helping to solve some of the most uh, intractable problems in the world today. And when it comes to sort of uh, you know taking on risk, uh, what is the biggest risk that you've taken? I think I shared earlier already that 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 the biggest risk was to to go on this journey and to persevere in this journey. It does have a personal, I guess, emotional toll. You know, it, it's that's probably the toughest uh, part of the the journey. That that I, if I may, I, I would share a story that. Before we started the, um, the Clearly campaign, you know, after the success of Vision for a Nation, where we showed there is a model that works to correct vision, even for the, the poorest members of society, when we stepped back and thought about that, how can we scale that up? If we did it one country at a time, it would take a thousand years. Mm-hmm. And that's then, then kind of the out-of-the-box thinking is, hey, let's do the, the Clearly campaign, right? But uh, when I went to, you know, to, to discuss this with my, my mother and my wife, my original commitment uh, I, I, that I said to them was it was going to be five million dollars right and and they said so you know well if you take that five million how many people based on your experience in 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 Rwanda how many people could you correct a vision for right I said well you know a million perhaps you know uh, and they said yeah well isn't that enough you know <laughs> and, and I said yes it, it helps that one million but but what are the other Two billion one hundred ninety-nine million people, right? They're not going to have, and so you know that spending the five million, you know, do you spend it on the on 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 the one million, you know, or do you spend it to try, you know, very low chance, but but if we are successful, then that will help the all the two point two billion, right? And so, uh, as I mentioned earlier, I think 
this journey for the philanthropist is very much around saying, you know, we have very limited capital. We can't solve it with our own money. But what we can do is to is to identify what are the, you know, the game changers, right? Risky, but if you if you 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 give it a shot and if it works, then you know, it's game changing. You had said that uh, there was a sort of an emotional toll, which it makes sense. Can you describe a little bit of what that feels like? You kind of step back and say, why, 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 why am I doing this? Nobody likes, you know, kind of failure, rejection, suffering, right? And perhaps uh, uh, having gone to uh, Jesuit boarding school in in, in England uh, helped to help to develop the fortif- fortification to persevere despite the suffering. That is something that I think philanthropists who, who go on this moonshot journey really need to realize that it is not an easy journey, right? It is a journey, but it is a tough journey. If problems were easy to solve, it would have been done already, right? But they are solvable with uh, players play, playing their part, right? And that's another big point about about my journey is that it wasn't me. I, I provided you know funding, but more importantly, the you know my improving domain expertise, I think, helped me to to understand better what's the right things to bet on. Collaboration is such an important part of whether it was with the health minister in Rwanda, whether it was the ambassador Webson at the UN, who's legally bind, but who championed our cause and took and helped to take the the resolution to its successful conclusion. There are many, many collaborators along the way, you know, and talented people who who have very much contributed to the success of, of my journey. Was there a moment when you did sort of feel like maybe this is my time where I step aside? Many times in every phase of my journey, that thought came came through, right? That rejection from the World Bank would have been the first time I encountered that. You know, coming from an entrepreneurial business family, I think the mark of on entrepreneurs is to take a, a rejection or failure and then figure out, you know, something better right what's a different way or better way to do this what did we learn from from that setback and uh, and how do we then retool the model and then and then figure out and t- try it again perhaps that's another good reason why you know wealthy families that have this uh, entrepreneurial business experience would would have the the right uh, mindsets to be able to to go on these philanthropic journeys, moonshot journeys. Would would you say that that's um, maybe like a habit that you maybe wouldn't be able to work without this idea of like thinking about this not maybe as a philanthropist, thinking about this as an entrepreneur? Okay, great. That's just feedback. That's just information. What can I do next? Would that be true? What I've done is, you know, in the finance world, right, would be really the seed or the venture funding, right, a component where it's it's very high risk and the chance of failure is, you know, 99%, but that 1% uh, success has exponential uh, impact, right? And so, you know, it helps to to overcome the, the failures, right? That's why I'm, I'm so keen to push this message of the, of the fact that the risk capital is, is needed in the social sector, not just in the for-profit sector, where it's been shown that it's made a huge difference, as we see in the world today, all of these uh, new technologies that are being uh, nurtured and grown, that model works. And my observation is that in the social sector, risk capital is is desperately in need. And being able to deliver that 
risk capital with some expertise behind it will really help to deliver huge change in the in the social sector. Is there a book that you recommend, something that shaped you, something that you think is just, gosh, everybody should read this? Is there is there a book that comes to mind? There's a book that was just released. It's called In Defense of Philanthropy by Beth Breeze, Professor Beth Breeze. It is a book where she characterizes the modern critiques of philanthropy. You know, there's been you know, several quite influential books written in the last few years, you know, critiquing philanthropy, right? And, and, and in this book, she really uh, tries to address these misunderstandings of how philanthropy actually works, uh, and, as well as what it has achieved. One of the big uh, points is very much that donors uh, do this to kind of gain, I guess, uh, more power, you know, right? And while that may be the case, what matters is what is that power used for? You know, is it used for the greater good or is it, you know, for self-aggrandizement, right? And it could be one or the other, but I think that uh, for for most people, if they're serious about doing philanthropy, and particularly if we're going to put in all that effort, right, there there are easier ways to you know to do it then, right? And and if someone was uh, was reading that book, what would they take from it? I think in that book, the what comes through is this this idea that passion matters as much as strategy. It's very much uh, not just about writing checks. It's about uh, you know, utilizing you know our own you know skills and this risk taking mindset. And, but also, you know, if, it, if there's no passion there, you won't be able to stay the course, right? That was James Chen. Thanks so much to this week's guest, and thanks to you for listening. If you liked this week's episode, please take a moment to rate and review us. We'd love to hear from you. And please take a look at wef.ch slash podcasts, where you'll find a transcript of this episode, as well as episodes from my colleagues of the World Economic Forum's Book Club Podcast and Radio Davos. This episode of Meet the Leader was produced and presented by me with studio production by Gareth Nolan. That's it for now. I'm Linda Lacina from the World Economic Forum. Have a great day.